All right. Man, it's been a great time already in the Lord's house. Glad you came to the house of God today. Man, the devil would have liked for nothing for you to do but to hit the snooze and just stay asleep on this rainy day. But blessings are in store for those who seek the face of God. If you have your Bible today, I will invite you to flip over to the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel chapter 18. I'm going to be preaching to you this morning on the topic of David again, back to the life of David. The title of the message this morning, Zero to Hero. Now many of you are familiar with the iconic photograph snapped by photographer Joe Rosenthal during the Battle of Iwo Jima. It's a shot of battle-weary Marines raising the American flag atop the barren peak of Mount Suribachi during one of the war's most bloody battles. The image became a rallying cry for troops during the final days of World War II. The photograph went on to win the Pulitzer Prize and it was reprinted by the millions and eventually was carved into stone at the Marine Corps War Memorial there in Washington, D.C. What many don't know is the story of the men who raised that flag. And several years ago, Clint Eastwood brought the story of those six soldiers to the big screen in a film called Flags of Our Fathers. And in that movie, it told the story of one man who was there raising the flag. He was a Native American, a Marine corporal named Ira Hayes. Hayes and the other five flag raisers became national heroes as a result of that photograph. However... Ira Hayes never wanted to be a hero. He never wanted the fame or the recognition that came with suddenly being thrust into the spotlight. It made him very uneasy. He attempted to live a civilian life after the war, but his fame and notoriety made it impossible. Not only did he receive hundreds of fan letters, but people would drive up to his house and ask to take pictures with him and um, request autographs. In 1954, at the dedication ceremony of the Marine Corps Memorial, he was lauded by Dwight D. Eisenhower, the president of that time, as a hero. And the reporters who approached Hayes asked him, how do you like being famous? And he shook his head and gave the response, I hate every minute of it. In order to deal with his new life, Ira Hayes, unfortunately, descended into alcoholism. And tragically, he drank himself to death in 1955. He was buried with full military honors. And in 1964, Johnny Cash, the great country music star, immortalized Ira Hayes in a song called Ballad of Ira Hayes. Now, I point to Mr. Hayes as a tragic example who reminds us of this truth. And that is... Success is just as much a test as adversity. There are many who can pass the test of hard times, but there are few who can handle success, fame, and riches. And I mention Ira Hayes because he had something in common with David, another young man whose life was completely changed because of his exploits on the battlefield. As Goliath fell with a thud... In the last chapter, 1 Samuel 17, David rose to meteoric heights in the kingdom of Israel. He went from zero to hero. 
He went from a shepherd boy to a giant killer. He moved from obscurity to celebrity. And 1 Samuel 18 tells that story. It describes the aftermath of David's great victory over the giant Goliath. And from this point on, David's life will never be the same. His victory, though, is almost turned into a defeat. And this chapter is going to explain how David's rise brought a shadow and a darkness into the kingdom as it changed the hearts of people all around him. And this, this chapter, I believe, teaches us today how to handle the blessings of God. We pray for the blessings of God. We desire those, but when we get them, it really reveals something about our heart. It also is going to teach us this morning about the sin of jealousy. What do you do when God blesses you? We work for that big promotion, that raise. We crave recognition. And when those things come, how we handle that says a whole lot about our character. And on the flip side, every one of us struggles with the twin sins of envy and jealousy. What do we do when we get passed over for promotion? When somebody else gets the blessing that we think we deserve because we've prayed for it and we've worked for it. And as always, as we study this Old Testament story, you are going to be surprised how it points us to Jesus and the gospel in some surprising ways. So I want you to see as you're taking notes this morning, number one, let's write this down, David's new fame. David's new fame. I picked the story up in verse 5. Verse 5, the Bible says, And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul sent him over the men of war. In other words, he made him a general. He made him a leader of men in battle. David is now getting the training that he needs to become a great king. And this was good in the sight of all the people and all in the sight of Saul and his servants. Verse 6, and as they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistines, the women came out of the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. David's new fame. Overnight, David has become a household name and the subject of a chart-topping hit, the people basically throw him a ticker tape parade. They ask for his autograph to kiss babies and so on. If there was a paparazzi back then, you can be assured that David would have been followed closely by an entourage of flashing cameras. And even though David did not seek to be a national hero, remember the only reason he went to the battlefield that day uh, was because he was a delivery boy. He was taking food to his brothers and he heard the loud mouth bragging of the giant and the fact that nobody had the courage to step up and silence the mouth of that foe just stirred something within David and he said, I'll fight the battle that nobody else will and God gave him the victory. He didn't set out that day to be a war hero. But he is thrust into the spotlight, no doubt, by the providential hand of God. And it's interesting because as you study this chapter, three times we read this phrase, the Lord was with him. Notice with me, verse 12, we'll see it there. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord 
was with him. Drop down to verse 14, you'll see it again. And David had success in all his undertaking, for the Lord was with him. Are you getting the point? Go to verse 28, and this will make it even clearer. And when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David, three times, so we don't miss it. Obviously, the key to David's success at this moment in his life was the hand of God blessing him, protecting him, providing for him. And what's interesting is David is humble enough to recognize this. Remember when he squares off with Goliath in the battle last chapter? Chapter 17, verse 47, he said, The battle is the Lord's. The Bible also says that David behaved wisely, which was another way of saying that David didn't let all the pomp and praise go to his head. I know some preachers who need to hear that. I know some singers who need to hear that. I know some ministry people who need to hear that today. You never read David getting puffed up with pride. He doesn't believe his own press clippings at this point in his life. And how many of us could handle such a spotlight? I mean, flip a switch, his, his life is completely changed in one day. How many of us would say we could be the same person if we won the lottery and got a million dollars overnight? Or if we were elevated to a position of authority or got the recognition that we so desired on social media? Many of us want those things. We crave those things. Uh, we ask God for those things. But is your character ready for those things? Proverbs 27 and 21 says this, quote, The crucible for silver and the furnaces for gold, but a man is tested by the praise he receives. You know what usually happens when the blessings start to come our way? You know what usually happens when you get that raise? When you're financially secure? When your ship comes in? When the thing you've been praying for and the door opens and the mountains move? You know, the first tendency for you and I to do is we forget about God. Oh, I don't, I don't need God anymore. <laughs> Times are good. I'm basking in the limelight. There's plenty of money in the bank. My, my health is good. The, the kids are okay. The, the church is growing. My business is going gangbusters. And no, normally when the blessing of God hits in our lives, the first thing that we do is we say, well, I'm going to buy a bigger truck. I'm going to get that place at the lake. I'm, I deserve this. I've worked hard. And we forget about God. And God takes a back seat. And we begin to love the blessings more than we do the blesser. The thing that strikes me and the thing that surprises me about David, even at such a young age, he doesn't let these things go to his head. Here's a young man who gets to the mountaintop and he remembers his God. Perhaps we ought to pray this. Lord, don't elevate me to the place that's beyond what my character can handle. Some of us have asked God for things and praise God He didn't give it to you. Why? Because you aren't ready for it. I'm not ready for it. And if God truly did say yes to all of our prayers, it could mean the destruction of our personal lives. But, but God has moved in David's life now. He's got a new fame. But fame is a double-edged sword. And listen to what David Jeremiah wrote about this. He said, 
quote, give worldly success, celebrity, wealth, and achievement to someone who doesn't have the character to handle it and watch that person destroy their lives. Success can be like a drug. The more a person has, the more that they crave. I know men who made it to the pinnacle of their lives and were consumed trying to fend off others wanting to be on the mountaintop. Success not only creates new problems, but it reveals all our flaws as well. We see this all the time in our media-saturated, celebrity-driven, influencer culture where we take a young athlete, 18, 19, 20 years old, and we pay them millions of dollars, and we shove a camera in their face, or maybe it's an artist, or maybe it's an actor or an actress, and we put these people on a pedestal, and they have zero character, and they have zero spirit of God within them, and then we step back to watch them fall and enjoy the show. And the sad reality is, friend, we've allowed that same mentality to seep into the church. We've got celebrity preachers and big name pastors and singers who when you get into the brass tacks of their life, it becomes all about them. Ministry becomes the platform that they use to elevate themselves and sell their own brand. And they're not suffering and serving Jesus anymore because they've lost sight of it all in the fame. Don't you ever put me on a pedestal. Don't you ever think more highly of me because I'm a sinner. My heart is black. And if the fame could grab hold of a heart, Satan would do it to me. Don't you ever elevate the man of God beyond the place where he needs to be. Why? Because I'll fail you. Because I'm a sinner. I'm broken. And sometimes I tremble to think that these things might be handed to me and I want them and their blessings in one regard, but at the same time they could be the thing that could destroy somebody's ministry and somebody's life. We see it all the time. Preachers get names. They get recognition. They get book deals. They get, it gets so big and inflated and then we come 5, 10, 15 years down the road and there's, there's infidelity. There's brokenness. There's mishandling of funds. And I could name name after name after name a preacher who lost sight of it. And you know people like this too. People who used to serve God. People who used to be at church. People who used to be on fire for the Lord. And all of a sudden they took that job. The blessings rolled in. And they didn't have time for God anymore. Don't give me those things. I don't want those blessings if it's going to pull my heart away from God. I don't want that place at the lake. I don't want that bigger truck or that boat or that job or that pedestal. Don't give me those things, Lord. All I want to do is please you. See, our hearts are all wrong. We want the wrong things. Now, there is one exception. There is one exception of a man that I believe exemplified this kind of spirit, and it was Billy Graham. In fact, you know Billy Graham preached to more people than any other person in history? 215 million, they say, who attended his crusades in person. That doesn't even include TV, radio, internet, and people are still getting saved today. We just had a young boy who came down a couple weeks ago and said he'd given his life to the Lord after watching a Billy Graham video. 
Listen to what happened to Dr. Graham on October the 15th, 1989. Billy Graham became the first clergyman to be honored with a star on the Hollywood Boulevard Walk of Fame. Big deal, right? Well, it is to some people. Athletes, singers, movie stars, they all have their star on the Walk of Fame. At the unveiling ceremony, here's what the mayor of Hollywood said. I doubt there is anyone in the world who has been seen, heard, or enjoyed more than Billy Graham. Now, how many people you know that would make their heads swell so big they couldn't get their, themselves in the doorway? Mr. Graham accepted the honor with humility. And then, you know what he did? I love this. He shifted the attention to Jesus. He said, quote, My primary desire today in having my name inscribed on this walk of fame is that God would receive the glory. I hope someday, he said, somebody will come by and see that star and say, Who is Billy Graham and what does he stand for? Perhaps a child will ask his grandparents and they will tell him, Oh, he wasn't a celebrity, he wasn't a star, he was just a preacher of the gospel. And they might explain the gospel to that young person and they might find Jesus in all of it. Now, what it's all about? We need to hear this message today. Newsflash, it's not about you. It's not about me. It's about Him. What a great reminder to us that we are always to pass the praise on to Jesus. That's what David did. David just deflected and he, he passed the glory on to the one who really deserved it. Like the old saying, I've said it many times, if you're walking down a country road and you look on a fence post and you see a turtle sitting on top, he didn't get there by his own accord. Somebody had to put him there. I feel like sometimes I'm sitting like a turtle on a fence post. But don't you think that I put myself here? God did it. And God deserves the glory. And Jesus Christ deserves the honor and the fame. Because one day, my name, your name, all the name in lights and, and, and in Hollywood and in sports halls will be forgotten. They'll all be turned to dust in a hundred years. Nobody will remember them. But there's one name that will echo throughout the halls of eternity. And it's the name Jesus Christ. And so we need to ask ourselves, if God blesses you, if God promotes you, if God uses you in some way to minister to another, then realize this, it's not your doing, it's His doing. We ought to use our platform, our gifts, our blessing to deflect all praise to Christ. Are you using your platform to point people to Jesus? You say, what do you mean, preacher? What about your business? You own a business? Are you using it to glorify God? About your social media. You know, one sign that would happen in the church is if people repented of the way they treated others on social media. I see Christians writing the most hateful things to other believers and it doesn't bring glory and honor to Christ. And there needs to be repentance in the house of God. Are you using that platform to glorify Christ? Are you using your talents, your skills, your place in the community? Maybe you're a leader, maybe you're a coach, maybe you're a teacher. Are you pointing people to Jesus through that? Because the number one thing that I want people to think about when they hear my name, I want them to think, oh, Jesus. Why? Because my life is a reflection of Him. Not me. David's new fame. But then I want you to see this number two. David's new foe. David's new foe. You see, fame is a double-edged sword. And while David was elevated... Saul didn't like it. Verse 8, notice what this passage says. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. 
And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands. And to me, they have ascribed thousands. Do you hear the sound of the smallest violin in the world playing on that one little broken string? Saul's having a pity party. Don't you do that too? If you're honest, you'd say yes. What more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. And the next day, a harmful spirit of God rushed upon Saul. And he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre as he did day by day. And Saul had his spear in his hand. And Saul hurled the spear for he thought, I will pin David against the wall. David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him and he departed from Saul and Saul rose and removed him from the presence and made him a commander of thousands. And he went out and came in before the people and David had success in all his undertakings. Everything Saul was doing to try and hurt David actually ends up blessing David. When Saul saw that he had a great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But when all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. Wow, what a passage. David's meteoric rise in the popularity polls came with a hidden danger though, didn't it? David is making King Saul look good in the eyes of the people. I mean, people, I mean, they, they defeated Goliath, the Philistines are on the run, and yet Saul can't enjoy the victory because he's allowed jealousy and envy to corrupt his heart. Despite all the good times, Saul is raging with the green sickness of envy. He's like an inactive volcano. He appears composed and put together on the outside, but inside he's full of calderas of paranoia and jealousy and fear. And at any moment, Saul can blow like Mount St. Helens. And he does. Picks up that spear, hurls it at David. And I think what Saul teaches us here are three hazards about the sin of jealousy and envy. You say, oh preacher, I don't, I don't struggle with that. Well, let's see. Jealousy and envy are often used interchangeably, by the way. But there is a small yet profound difference. Notice this. Jealousy begins with full hands and then moves through life in the terror of losing something. It is fueled by the fear of loss. Envy, however, begins with empty hands and it laments at what it doesn't have. Jealousy wants to preserve what it already has and envy wants to gain what another possesses. These are twin sisters. They are similar, but they are also different. Both fueled by different forms of fear. This is David's new foe. So how does this affect you and me? Well, I want you to see that jealousy and envy compares. That's the first thing that it does. Saul can't enjoy the victory over the Philistines because he's too busy playing a comparison game. Oh, listen to what the people are singing about David and, and, and how they refer to me. Because Saul knows that in a side-by-side taste test, people are going to choose David over Saul nine times out of ten. He's so insecure that he can't take it. Teddy Roosevelt former president once said this, quote, comparison is the thief of joy. Friend, it's hard to count your blessings when you're so busy trying to count somebody else's. You can't be content, you can't have peace, and you can't enjoy a blessing of God. Saul should be happy, but he's eat up. 
And he lets a victory be turned into a defeat because of comparison. Listen, you set yourself up to be a most unhappy person and a most displeased Christian when you get into this trap of comparing. Well, so-and-so lives in this house. So-and-so drives that car. So-and-so has this blessing. And look at little old me. Jealousy and envy compares. You know, this is a trap for pastors as well. We compare ourselves to the church down the road. We look at the numbers of people that they run in the door. We look at the bottom line of their budget. And we compare it to ours and we say, Well, God's blessing down the road, but He's not doing anything with my ministry. We can lose sight of all that church size and church growth and ministry impact. And comparison is a losing game. Because we forget to count our blessings and we get caught in the pit of feeling less than. And you know what this leads to? We buy things we don't need with money we don't have to try and impress people we don't know. That's where comparison, envy, and jealousy leads to. It doesn't help that this sin is magnified today by this little thing right here. You can pull this thing out and go on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, or whatever social media platform of your choice and instantly you can begin to compare yourself to somebody else's life, somebody else's airbrush pictures, somebody else's perfect date or perfect vacation, and you can begin to view yourself through this screen and you can become a miserable person. Because jealousy and envy begins to seep into your heart. You say, Pastor, you're, you're making a mountain out of a molehill. Listen to this. Do you think people's lives have been made happier or more depressed by social media? Are you happier and more blessed today in 2022, those of you who have lived long enough to remember, in the 1990s and early 2000s when there was no real internet and there was no social media. Are you happier today? According to researchers at the University of Montreal, listen to this, social media crushes self-esteem. They said this, the advent of social media which allows us to share content where we always appear in our best light has led many researchers to consider the possibility that this amplifies unrealistic expectations. Research shows that the more time people spend on Facebook and Instagram and the more they compare themselves socially, the more unhappy they are. This social comparison, they said, is linked, among other things, to lower self-esteem, higher social anxiety, depression, and even suicide. Jealousy and envy compares. You know what else it does? It corrupts. Because look at what verse 11 says. Let me remind you. And Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. The golden-haired boy of Israel has now become Saul's target. His heart has now been totally corrupted. Proverbs 14 and verse 30 says, The envy is, quote, the rottenness of the bones. In other words, it gradually eats away at us from the inside out. And if you let this sin go long enough, it destroys relationships. And in the case of Saul and David, it can take a friend and turn them into an enemy. 
Does that ever happen in the house of God, among the people of God? You better believe it. People who used to be close, used to be friends, used to be on good rapport with one another. But what happens? Sin comes in. We get jealous. We get envious. And all of a sudden, we've drifted a million miles apart from the people we used to worship with, used to love, and used to call friend. That's a sign your heart needs revival, church. If you're sitting here today and you have ill will in your heart towards somebody, you need to be at this altar. You need to be pleading for forgiveness and that God would remove any heart of bitterness that you have in your life. You didn't come to the house of God to hear that message today, did you? That's a hard one to preach. But it's true. Because I've been in it. I've been in church fights. I've been in mediation meetings. I've been in times where there was anger and bitterness and tears and I got tired of it. As a pastor, it exhausts me. Yes, we're all sinners and yes, our relationships always face problems because we're all broken. But when the people of God can't forgive one another and can't move on, there's something wrong. I'm pleading to you today as, as your shepherd, don't turn out like Saul. Don't let your relationships be destroyed over stupid things. That on the day that you are buried in there, you're laying in front of the casket. None of that's going to matter. When you're on your deathbed, you're going to wish, I wished I would have forgiven that person. I wished I would have made amends. I wish I would have shown them some grace and mercy. Ain't nobody saying amen today. And that's okay. Jealousy and envy corrupts and it compares. Listen to what John Ortberg said. He said, quote, Envy is disliking God's goodness to someone else and dismissing God's goodness to me. Envy is desire plus resentment. Envy not only seeks self-gratification to diminish the hate of the one I envy. Envy makes my brother's piece of cake look bigger and better than mine. And it leads to a hatred that causes me to kill my brother a thousand times in my heart. A child may have a hundred toys, but to envy makes the one toy that a sibling asked to play with the most desirable of all. You've raised kids. You've seen that before. Guess what? Adults do it too. Shakespeare accurately called it, quote, the green-eyed monster. And it gets in the hearts of God's people as well. Last one, jealousy and envy controls. Look at verse 12 said, Saul was afraid of David. And he's the one with the spear. And he's afraid of David. And then look at verse 14. David had success in all his undertaking for the Lord was with him. Twice in this passage we are told that Saul feared David. And the connection between fear and envy may not be so obvious, but the sin of envy is ultimately tied to fear. Let me explain it to you like this. In the case of Saul, Saul is afraid of losing power to David. He views David now as a threat to the throne. And therefore, out of that fear comes jealousy and envy 
And when we give in to envy, it is because we are controlled by fear. Fear of being viewed as less than. Fear of being forgotten. Fear of not being liked. And the root of envy is a primal fear that we all share the loss of control. Isn't that what a lot of it boils down to? We want to control things. We want to control people. We want to control outcomes. We want to control money. We want to control the way things go. And when we lose control, fear comes out and the monster rears his ugly head. Man, that's so true. There's a story that goes back to ancient Greece. That there was an athlete who ran well but placed second in the Olympics. The winner was encompassed with praise and eventually a statue was erected in the honor of that winning sprinter. But envy ate away at the heart of the runner who placed second. He resented the winner so much that he could think of little else to do but to sneak away into the town square every night with his hammer and his chisel and begin to chisel away at the base of that statue. And One night he pecked and he pecked and he pecked until the statue finally collapsed and the heavy marble came crashing down on the second place athlete and he died under the weight of his own sin. How about you? You struggling today with envy, jealousy? You got bad blood between somebody in your family, in your neighborhood? Somebody that you try to avoid because you don't want to confront the big elephant in the room? Maybe they're even in this church. There's grace available to you today. You don't have to be like Saul. You don't have to live in fear and jealousy and hatred and bitterness. You can get all that out. You can come to Jesus Christ and His cross and find forgiveness. And the weight can be lifted off of you. There can be reconciliation. But if you don't get a hold of this sin of jealousy and envy, if I don't get a hold of it, the Bible says in Proverbs 6 that it's one of the sins that God hates. It's the sin that caused Cain to kill Abel, the sin that caused Joseph's brothers to sell him into slavery. It's the sin that destroyed Saul. And according to Matthew 27, 18, it's the sin that led the Pharisees to conspire so that Jesus would be crucified. So it's not a small thing. That's David's new foe and David's new fame. But I also want you to see today David's new friend. By the way, let me pause and tell you something before I move on. I love you. I'm not your enemy today. I'm preaching just as much to myself as I am to you. Please know I'm not trying to beat anybody down today. But I love you. And I love this church. And I don't want to see the unity and the blessing of God depart from our congregation because we can't get a hold of our hearts. We've come way too far, church. We've covered so much ground. We've seen God bless and God give victory and lives change and baptism waters move and people come in the door and I'm not giving that ground up to the enemy. I've worked too hard. Brother Stan, we've prayed too much. Stacy, brother, and the music team, we've practiced too much. We've worked too hard to give this stuff up to the enemy. I won't do it. I love you, church. And I don't want to see any of us fall victim to this stuff. 
Because don't you know the devil's mad? He hates Liberty Baptist Church. He wants to see this place go down. In any way that he can get a foot in the door, and anybody that he can use, he'll use them. Don't be a tool of the enemy. Recognize this stuff in your heart and say, God, forgive me. God, take it from me. For my family's sake, for my joy, for my testimony, for my church's sake. I'm just talking to you because I love you today. Please hear me. David's new friend. He got new fame. He got a new foe. And he got a new friend. Boy, don't we need friends. As soon, verse 1, as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him with his own soul. And Saul took him that day, and he would not let him return to his father's house. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him and his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Wow, what a scene. Jonathan is one of the most remarkable men in the Bible. There's no sin recorded of his life. Now, we know that he was a sinner, obviously. But he joins other Old Testament greats like Joseph and Daniel. There's no ill thing reported of him in the Bible. And here's what's remarkable about Jonathan. If anyone had something to lose here, it was him. He's the heir apparent. He's Saul's son. He's the next in line to take the crown. And not to mention, while David was out feeding the lambs, Jonathan is out slaying Philistines and stacking the bodies ten high. He was a man's man. And he's upstaged by this runt. If anybody ought to be bitter and ill, it would be Jonathan. But you don't see that. Why? Because he's controlled by the Spirit of God. Jonathan had every reason to hate David, but he didn't. We don't know if he knew about David's anointing or not at this point, but even if he did, there's no hint from Jonathan that he was bitter. Instead, on the very day, listen to this, on the very day that David defeats Goliath, Jonathan gets down and he pledges his allegiance to a 16-year-old kid and he recognized the anointing and that God's hand was on him and he basically Passed the crown on to David. He said, I'm giving up all my rights to rule and reign. They now belong to you, David. Here's my sword. Here's my cloak. You send me. I'm your servant now. I'm telling you, you got to tip your hat to Brother Jonathan. As it takes a big heart to do that. Why? It's not easy to rejoice in the blessing of another. Somebody else's ministry is getting blessed and yours isn't? When your church is falling apart and somebody else is on the mountaintop? And you're sick and suffering and your life's falling apart and it seems like you look at somebody else's life and they can do no wrong? They've got the Midas touch? Sometimes it can be hard to rejoice in the blessings of another. Somebody say amen. Jonathan should have hated David's guts. Yet he gives David the royal robe and the sword. He effectively crowns David and says, David, you the man. <laughs> Let me tell you something, Christian. God will bless you if you can get to the point in your life 
when you can rejoice in the blessings of somebody else. You got the job? Great. You got the dream house? Awesome. God bless in your ministry? Praise God. Let's praise Him together. If you can get your heart to that place, you'll have multiplied joy because you'll rejoice in the blessings of other people. By the way, I'm not concerned about these other churches. People ask me, Pastor Derek, you live in the shadow of Biltmore Baptist Church. Who cares? I don't know their pastor. He doesn't know me. I pray that God blesses them. I pray that they have so many people come to Christ, a revival starts, and they can't fit enough people in there. I pray that God does it at Starnes Cove and Pole Creek and used to be New Morgan here. What is it now? Lake Hills. As long as they're preaching the gospel and staying true to that book, I hope God blesses them. You know why? Because I had to go through this in my ministry. Well, you look around at everybody else and you say, God, do you even know I'm here? Do you even see what I'm trying to do? And God had to get me to a very special place where He said, when are you going to rejoice in what I'm doing for the whole kingdom? Because last time I checked, there's only one name on the jersey. It ain't Derek McCarson. It's King Jesus. Amen. Right? And I need to get on board with that. And we all do. Because I'm tired of living in the shadow of jealousy and envy and corruption. I want to serve Christ. I want Him to get the glory and the honor and the praise because He died for me. He rose for me. He's coming back for you and me. He's the one whose name is going to be heard throughout eternity. Two applications as we close. Man, I've preached too long. Two things as I close today. There are three responses we can have when God blesses We can have a David response, we can have a Saul response, or a Jonathan response. David responded to God's blessings by staying humble and deflecting the praise. Saul responded with envy, which ultimately destroyed his soul and stole his joy. Jonathan responded by blessing David and rejoicing in all the ways that he could help David. So when God's blessings come, we can have one of those three responses. We can be like David, deflect all the glory. We can be like Saul, we can come bitter and envy and jealous. Or we can come like Jonathan and be an encourager. Like David, if you've been blessed, are you giving glory to God by using your platform and your resources to point people to Jesus? Or like Saul, if you're struggling with jealousy or envy, hey listen, it's time to repent. Or like Jonathan, is there a ministry or a person in the church that you can fully commit to helping and succeed by offering your service, your prayers, and your encouragement? Listen, friend, we got plenty of souls out in the world. We need Jonathans in the church who will encourage, who will bless others. Who, how can I pray for you? How can I give? How can I help you be the best that you can be and what God has called you to do because it's going to accrue to me anyway if I bless you and God gets the glory and the blessing. Somehow, I'm not going to be outblessed. God's going to get the glory and He's going to take care of me. Amen? There's a story told of two men who were both terminally ill and confined to one hospital room. This hospital room had one window. 
that looked out onto the world. One man had a position of his bed right there by the window. And the other was on the other side of the room. Both of them bedfasts. And these two men became friends as they suffered toward the end of their life. As the days passed, these two men would spend hours talking about their wives and their former lives and their children and their homes and their hobbies and their time in the military. And every afternoon for an hour, the man whose bed was beside the window, he would look out and he would help pass the time by describing every single detail that he could see. The other man would lay in the bed and he would listen intently, wishing he could go outside or at least see it. He would listen and imagine. Apparently outside this window there was a lake, there was ducks, there was children playing, there were flowers, there was green grass, there was lovers holding hands and and, and children walking dogs. It was picturesque. The man confined to his bed would listen to all this and imagine and he would fantasize. But as this continued day after day, and as he didn't get better, and he had no window to the world, he began to get bitter and jealous. And he said, why can't I have the bed with the window view? He began to brood over this and his condition worsened and he got sicker. And he began to hate that whole hour of the day where he would describe what was outside until the point it just made him so angry he said, stop talking and leave me alone. One night, the man in the bed by the window suffered a sudden heart attack and died. As soon as it seemed decent, the man in the other bed asked if he could be moved over to the side of the room with the window. And once he was moved there, he propped himself up with all of his strength and he looked out the window and he was shocked and he was ashamed when he looked out the window and all he saw was a brick wall. There was no park, there was no pond, there was no view He'd been envious and jealous that another man had tried to bless him. Don't give in to that sin. Get it right today. And then the last response is this. There's two responses we can have to the person of Christ. You see, in this series we've learned that David is an Old Testament picture of who? Jesus. David is crowned king. Jesus is the king of kings. And just as David rose to prominence, he became a divisive figure, didn't he? Jonathan recognized David's special uniqueness and he bowed before him as king and he offered himself as a loyal subject. But Saul, on the other hand, he rejected David and he fought against God's plan. And just as David was king and he divided people, there's a king of kings named Jesus and he divides all of humanity, doesn't he? In fact, he's the most divisive figure of all time. In Matthew 10, he said, I'm coming to bring a sword. I will even divide mother and father and son and daughter because they will have to choose whether they'll accept me or whether they'll reject me. You see, friend, this morning, you can either act like Saul and you can fight and you can reject God's king or you can be like Jonathan and recognize God's king and say, you know what? You are Lord You are Christ. You are Savior. You are Messiah. I surrender myself to You. I pledge allegiance to You, Lord. You see, because you'll either bow before Him today in humility or you'll bow before Him one day in humiliation. You make the choice. As our musicians are coming, I suspect 
there's some heart work that needs to be done today. Our altar is going to be open. If you need Christ, if you need to be saved today, the altar is open. If you've got bitterness, jealousy, and these things that I preached about, if you've got sin festering in your heart, this altar is open. It's time to repent. It's time to get it right. If you need to be prayed for or you need healing, I don't know what you need today, but our altar is open. And let the Spirit of God move as we stand and as Preston leads us today. Hey, let's get it right today.